Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is the state of containerized shipping with my friend Brian Kempisty. Brian is the founder of Port X Logistics, a transportation company that specializes in expediting containerized cargo throughout the U.S. and Canada. While most drage companies are small local carriers that only work out of one or two ports, Port X services every port and every rail ramp in the U.S. and Canada, and they employ state-of-the-art technology to manage the shipment before it even reaches the port. Nobody knows more about containerized freight than my friend Brian, so check out our conversation. But before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about my friends over at Tomorrow. Website is tomorrow.io. Tomorrow has developed a weather intelligence and climate security platform that is custom built to help logistics and transportation companies to reduce the impact of weather on their operations. The cost of weather-related accidents, delays, inventory damage, service failures, hours of service problems, they're enormous. But what can we do? We can't change the weather, but we can do a better job of planning around the weather. And that's exactly what they do for you over at Tomorrow.io. They have their own satellites. This is the next generation of weather forecasting. Check them out at Tomorrow.io. I will put a link in the show notes so you can reach out and talk to them. So how's it going, Brian? Very well. Brian, please introduce yourself and your company where you're calling from today. Sure. Uh, Brian Kempesty. I am the founder of PortX Logistics, and we're coming to you from my office in downtown Bozeman, Montana today. Very, very nice. So what does PortX Logistics do? Uh, we specialize in expediting containerized cargo once it hits the shores of the U.S. and Canada. So that would be drayage, transloading, and trucking. And with a combination of our company assets, our owner operators, and our logistics network, we can pick up at every single rail ramp and port in the United States and Canada on a daily basis. Very nice. Very nice. So go slow. You said you guys move containerized freight. So this is the stuff coming off the ocean shipping lines, right? You get it out of port for them? Correct. We're we're handling that drayage, whether it be out of the port or if you're doing an inland move to Denver, for example, we will help track that cargo on the water for you. We will track it through the port on the West Coast, and then we'll track the rail into Denver, and then we'll send one of our drivers to pick that up at the Denver rail ramp and deliver it in Colorado. Yep. And you guys have warehouses too? We do. We have some of our own warehouses across uh, the United States, and then we have par partner warehouses across the United States, which does allow us to handle transloading at any port in the United States and Canada. And, you know, with our vast network and our own assets, I think one of the key differentiators with us is always speed, right? So we're trying to get something. Our goal is we pick up the container, the container goes in door one, the truck over the road truck goes into door two, and the freight goes directly from the container to the truck, which means we only handle it once. There's less chance of damage. The speed into the truck is quicker. And then the final user, whether that be a manufacturer or if it's a distribution center for retail goods, they're getting their product much faster than uh, unloading it, letting it sit on the dock for 24 to 48 hours, then sending a truck and then sending it out. So our, our process is very smooth, very seamless and very fast. Yep. So I'm going to ask you some basic questions for the layman in me. That's transloading when I move it out of that drayage into a, a truck. So you guys do that transloading. And th that's that's there's an art and a science to that because those containers are, are ship are loaded one way. Trucks got to be loaded a different way. And it has to be right. It can't fall down. And by the way, I've seen that where something gets loaded in Mexico and then you got a nice pretty picture. And then when you open it in Texas, you go, what the hell happened? Yep. Well, there and there's a lot of nuances to it, right? I mean, the first thing is understanding what kind of cargo you're moving. Um, that could mean looking at the packing slip. It, it's also as basic as knowing where your cargo is coming from. We know if we've got a container of, I don't know, blenders coming to Savannah from Asia, 
that it's going to be on the floor. We're going to need to palletize it. We're going to keep all of the cartons within the footprint of the pallet. We've got wrapping specifications where it gets wrapped three times and attached to the skid. We make sure that that's loaded appropriately, secured with you know load bars and load locks. But you could have a container coming from Germany that has auto parts, and we already know before the container gets here that it's skidded because that's how the Europeans send their freight versus how Asians send the freight. So, you know, working with somebody that's got expertise in drayage, transloading and trucking, you know, we, we know what we're getting into before we open those doors in almost all instances. Well, that's a, that's a big step in the right direction. So I get a quick question for you regarding that container. So I've, I'm in Detroit area. Now I know in the past, uh, something of, that when I was still at a little three PL, Moving something from, I think it was from Port of Chicago over to Detroit. And it went, basically the container was shipped to the, to the end customer. So that's like four and a half, five hours from Chicago to Detroit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they shipped the actual container. And I was like, oh, okay. I figured they would say, no, no, we're, we'll, we'll transload it into a truck. So they, ports don't normally like their containers going that far away from the port, do they? It depends. There's a threshold. And we usually say, you know, it's about 400 miles. If you're within 400 miles, it's probably cheaper to just truck the container intact on a chassis. A couple of issues come into play when you're going longer haul on a chassis and specifically a pool chassis. They're not necessarily all maintained. They're supposed to be local, right? So they don't have new tires. They don't have, you know, they're not built for an 800 mile round trip. They're built to go 80 miles outside of Chicago. So that's another thing that you have to look into is the roadworthiness of the chassis and whether you have a private chassis or a pool chassis. You know, we run operations in Chicago. And if we were to do that, we would prefer to put that container on our own chassis because we, we have a shop. It's maintained. We know the brakes work. We know the tires match. Um, and it's more than just, hey, let's just haul this thing 10 miles down the road. The other thing you mentioned, the type of container, right? A normal standard 20 or 40 foot container, probably the steamship line, not that big of a deal to go from Chicago to Michigan. But when you get specialized equipment like flat racks, which is like a flat bed container that goes on a vessel or an open top, they don't want those going all over the country because they need that equipment, they need to keep it near the port. They need to get that turned and and utilize it because there's there's so much less common. Yeah, and I think Detroit to Chicago is 275 miles, so yeah. that would make sense. So I've I've always wondered. So there is a threshold, and it's more related to the tractor than it is to the container. Usually, the chassis. I think it's the chassis that the container sits on is the biggest. Okay. The biggest issue, it. and then and then the brakes, the tires, the maintenance, the lights, all that, all that stuff. You know, they're not like fifty-three foot dry van trailers that are made to go across the country. Excellent, excellent. So, one more time, who do you guys work with? Who's who? You guys specialize your sweet spot? Well, we work with with all sorts of customers. It could be. You know, we work with many of the freight forwarders who who manage people's supply chains for them. We work with electronics companies that might need speed to market could be a big thing. There's a sale, there's Black Friday. They need to make sure that their cargo is at these distribution centers, Walmarts, Targets, Amazons to make those those sales. And then we work in the manufacturing community too. You mentioned, you know, you'd worked in the automotive industry and whether you're, you know, Ford, GM or or if you're a tier one provider, you know, say a Johnson Controls and you, you need to get certain things in there, you cannot let a production line go down because it costs hundreds of, hundreds of thousands. <laughs> That's what they tell million, us. <laughs> right. Yes. So so if you've got any chance of delay at the port on the rail, you're going to want to transload and truck that to ensure that that line doesn't go down because spending an extra $5,000 for your transload and truck is way better than spending hundreds of thousands of dollars per hour to be down. Got it. Got it. Well, thank you for clarifying. So there was some changes. I know you guys have a newsletter and I saw some of that newsletter and it talked about some challenges we have on both the East Coast and the West Coast. And it's not just East Coast ports and the West Coast ports. We have some challenges just in general right now. And it seemed like 
catastrophe averted with the port strike or the lack of port strike. It just seemed like we had some slowdown. So I asked you to come on and talk about those things. So first, well, first, what's the name of your newsletter? We just call it the PortX Logistics uh, Weekly Market Update, which is found on our website under the blog section. And it's awesome. Jill Rice does a great job writing it. And it's, it's information and entertainment at the same time. It's not just you know, statistics. There's some real life news from our operators that are on the ground. We're not just saying, yeah, you know, you know, this port went up X percent this week and this one went down X percent. Like we're giving you some real live instances of of what is happening on the ground. Right. I like it because it has a point of view. I always say, I want a point of view. You guys are experts, so I want your point of view. So often people write in a generic format where you're like, we just want to be found for Google. Is that why you wrote it? Yeah. <laughs> and and we're okay with being somewhat opinionated and having a point of view because we do think we are the, the experts in there and we don't have any problem saying, hey, this is our stance on this and this is what we think should happen because there's way too many people that try to like thread the needle and walk right down the middle, but they actually say nothing. Yeah. I I started the logistics of logistics, but I was still a COO of a logistics company. I would write articles and I always used to say, I tried to write that spicy burrito rather than oatmeal. And then when I started doing some digital marketing for people, a lot of times you would talk to corporate would look and go, oh no, no, we got to take the sharp edges yeah. off this. <laughs> And I was like, you're turning my spicy burrito to oatmeal. And there's nothing worse in my mind because you can go, oh my God, I'm reading this. And these guys get it. They they understand the space and they're giving us their two cents. And the sarcasm means something here, right? Yeah. Well, and that's our, you know, we always talk about part of our success is being authentic. And that's why our customers and our audience really likes us. Because you're dealing with authentic human beings rather than, you know, not that we don't put out white papers, but we're not really trying to put out a white paper or something that would be published by a professor in college. Like we're real workers on the front lines doing this. And we're going to tell you what we think about how things are going and, and how to effectively, you know, get better. Well, this, this is the challenge sometimes when we all have we have more information at our fingertips than ever before but it's not knowledge until it's until it's kind of disseminated with maybe an expert that says here's here's the information here's what you need to do <laughs> anyway so reading your newsletter there i saw some things that are still a challenge so let's start out on the west coast what is going on with the port strike or lack thereof, I should say. We would say disaster kind of averted. The ILWU and the PMA, you know, so the PMA is representing the ports and the marine terminals or the, the you know, the, the vessels coming in. They agreed to a six-year deal with 32% raise over six years and a $70 million hero bonus, you know, I don't know if they called it a hero bonus or if I called it a hero bonus, but that was basically the port workers coming to work through COVID, right? So that was what they agreed upon. There is still no guarantee. It still has to be ratified. That generally takes 90 days. So in the next 90 days, could there be a hiccup where something comes up and and that doesn't get ratified? Sure. But we think that that's not likely. The, there's a couple issues that still do persist. Canada, the ILWU Canada is separate from the ILWU US. There has been no news there for about a week. So Vancouver and Prince Rupert, there still could be port strikes up there. There still could be slowdowns. There still could be disruption. Would you say Prince Rupert? I don't even know what that is. Prince Rupert is about 920 miles north of Vancouver. So it's nearly Alaska. But that is the fastest route from China to the United States. So when when things are a well-oiled machine, if you ship from Asia to Prince Rupert and the CN is working timely with no delays, you can get Wait, your what's the C what's the CN? The Canadian National Railway. You can get very quick and effective transit times from 
Asia, China, to the Midwest, a place like Chicago. They've got expedited rail. However, Prince Rupert is a town of 10,000 people. If there's a, a forest fire in northern British Columbia, there's a train derailment, there's any sort of disruption whatsoever, and you need to transload your cargo when it gets to Prince Rupert, you're sending trucks all the way from Vancouver, 920 miles north, to get the cargo, to then truck it to the United States. And a little bit of risk. With a town of 10,000 people, how much labor do you think you have available to do transloads? Not much. So when things are, are moving smoothly, there's no issues, there's no disruptions. It's a great option. But when there is disruption, it can cause, you know, it can be very costly. Interesting. Interesting. So prior to this, what we'll call it, it's an agreement, but it's not been ratified yet. There was slowdowns and that's kind of the nature of having labor negotiations, a little bit of flexing the muscle, yep. the labor is slow things down to say, Hey, you know, we, and I, I'll put my uh, labor hat on for a moment. We, we, st we were here during COVID when it got real tough, we were here, we were unloading these boats when it was the eyes of the world and sometimes the scorn of the world on the ports and now we want to get paid, so we're going to slow down and let you know our power over here. We don't see that anymore? Maybe a little bit. I mean, some of the slowdowns was, there was just a lot of people, they, they call them gangs, right? There, it takes, you know, six or seven workers with these lifts that are working in area. Well, if if three or four of them were out, well, then the whole gang couldn't work and that one area became a closed area and that meant you couldn't pick up your container with a truck, but it also meant that they were not getting uh, efficiently from vessel to the rail. And, you know, when you get those longer dwell times from vessel to rail, you know, then that's, you know, extending your anticipated delivery time. So there was some of that. It's not terrible right now. We are still seeing in Canada some of that at Delta Port in Vancouver. But like I looked in LA Long Beach this morning, the average was 3.4 days, which is, is really relatively good. But the volumes 3 .4 are- 3.4 days from what to what? From the vessel to the rail. That's not bad. No, it's not bad. But you also say, how, how long does it actually take, the actual work being done? And that's got to be, you know- few hours, right? <laughs> yeah, it, maximum a couple hours. It's just so it's still stacking up a little bit. But what and this is a little side note, but I interviewed you, I don't know, a few six months ago. And I remember one of the things I learned that I thought was really cool about what you guys are doing is you, you guys use a lot of technology, which is not always the norm with companies that do drayage. Those tend to be mom pa companies and they aren't super high tech. You say I'll tell you before, I'll tell you when your container is going to be unloaded before you tell me. And I think that's, that is what we need to get our stuff out of those ports. Because I've said it to you before, but I said it before we hit record. Somebody says, oh, your stuff's going to be on the ocean for 25 days. Yeah, well, then why is everything taking 40 days? Where's the other 15 days? Yeah, I mean, we used technology prior to the pandemic. And that really allowed us to flourish um, during the pandemic. So we partner with several technology companies from a tracking perspective, right? So somebody like an open track, we also have EDI and API connections with many of the steamship lines, uh, many of the rails, but we started tracking cargo on the ocean on our customer's behalf for a couple of reasons. One, we could give the customer clarity from origin port through destination port and a final delivery. So there was one place they could go to portxlogistics.com, you know, our turbo tenant, log on there and know exactly where their cargo was. The second thing was it was very selfish on our behalf too, because during the pandemic, the, the norm is once cargo has been cleared. This was the norm prior to pandemic. They wait until cargo is customs cleared, which means the vessel is nearly at the port in order to arrange a drayman like us. Well, if there's severe congestion and there's no chassis and there's no warehouse space and there's no drivers, 
well, good luck. Your stuff is going to sit at the port until there's available availability to pick it up. And then you're going to pay port detention or demerge. Well, if we know 15, 17, 18 days prior to vessel arrival, what cargo that we've got, we're allocating drivers, we're allocating chassis, we're allocating yard space, we're allocating pallets. There was a pallet shortage during the pandemic. So it allows us to pre-plan and be very proactive versus very reactive. So, you know, we've got our TMS platform, Turvo. We've got integrations, like I said, could be with steamship lines, could we be with open track, you know, other data providers in the marketplace. And then we even have some, you know, everybody's using the term AI, but I think this is really AI technology. When we're doing a transload, we have something that comes in through Savannah and we're transloading that cargo into an over the road truck. We can take a picture with our cell phone and we take a picture of that container number and we take a picture of that cargo and it is instantly loaded into the customer's tenant in our TMS. So as soon as we take a photograph, the customer has access to pictures of their cargo coming out of that container. And that's without you know, having to go back to the office and download it and then drag and drop them into our TMS system, it is instantaneous. So we use a lot of technology and, you know, we don't really care where the data comes from. We're willing to work with anybody. And if it's going to enhance the customer's experience, we're going to try to do it. Yeah. You told me before we hit record, you're like, we're agnostic. I don't care which one of the visibility solutions we're going to use, whatever makes sense correct, or whatever our customer's using. So Crisis averted, at least it seems like it. We, we have to get that ratified out there in the West Coast. But talk about some of the other challenges on the West Coast, because I know stuff is moving from the West Coast to the East Coast. I mean, people, shippers, container lines are more likely now to go to the East Coast and the West Coast. What, so talk a little bit about that trend and why is that happening? Business-friendly states are winning. You know, we see Elon Musk took Tesla to Texas and he took Tesla to Texas. Some was tax, some was business-friendly, you know, environmental impact studies that might take, I mean, heck, to build a new Tesla facility, it could have taken 15 years to get something passed. So, you know, we see that from the automotive sector. We see it from the EV battery sector. You know, even some of the semiconductor, you see them moving to different areas of the country. So a couple of stats that I wrote down from 2007 until today, and I think this is maybe somewhat labor related, but not all labor related. U.S. West Coast went from 65 to 56 percent of the Trans-Pacific cargo. The East Coast went from 31 to 35 and the Gulf went from three to eight. So you're seeing those places that are building these new factories, Tennessee and Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, you know, people are utilizing these other ports of entry and they're business friendly and they're growing fast and they're willing, they're very willing to take California's cargo and California's money and bring it to their economies. Yeah. And when you said it's not just labor related, so this is an interesting note is there are two unions. There is the ILWU on the West Coast, and there's the ILWA, is it, on the East Coast? I think it's just Coast? the ILA on the East Coast. ILA, okay. But basically, these are the Longshoremen's Union. And from what I've heard on many times on my podcast, the East Coast, these are separate unions. Usually, you think of they'd be just one big union. I'm sure they've had the discussion and it didn't work, but... Apparently, I've heard this many times in my podcast, that the East Coast Union is a little easier to work with. And that is part of the reason they're getting some of that 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 trend is moving to the East Coast. I think it's more than they're easier to work with. The, the kinds of jobs that are unionized in L.A. versus the kinds of jobs that are, are unionized in Savannah, there's just a lower percentage of port workers I'm using Savannah as an example versus LA, you know, there's a a larger percentage that are non-union. So say it's 70% on the West Coast, it might only be 25% on the East Coast. So the the union just doesn't have as much pull because there's not as many union employees. Yep. So I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Lean Solutions Group. Lean Solutions is 
a nearshore offshore service provider, and they provide a range of services, including operation, technology, marketing, sales, and business process outsourcing. They work with over 500 U.S. transportation and logistics companies. And what they have is this model where they have satellite offices down in Colombia, Guatemala, Mexico, and the Philippines. And their, their approach is real low cost, low risk, low hassle. They have 9,000 employees now. They're one of the fastest growing companies in America. And again, everybody I know seems to be working with them. But if you're not working with them, check them out. Lean Group, L-E-A-N group.com. And by the way, my podcast is edited by someone from Lean Lean Solutions Group. They're a fantastic company. I just did an interview with Ryan Mann. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Check them out. So by the way, I'm from automotive, which is heavily unionized. And there's a lot of like white collar union people in automotive. And Usually when you're working with people in the union, it's never the majority of people who are problems. Sometimes you end up though with, and by the way, one of my buddies is a Teamsters rep. I see him at the gym and he always bitches. He says, it's always some loser that, that you know should be fired, but we have to represent him. He got mm-hmm. high or drunk or doesn't show up. And he said, and all of us kind of pay the price rep- for our reputation wise. He goes, to keep that guy on. I was like, yeah, that's kind of when someone says they don't like working with unions. They're always talking about that guy. Who yeah. Got that drunk guy. And high and didn't show up. Right. Yep. So it's, so when somebody hears this time about unions, I don't want them thinking it's the unions themselves. And by the way, sometimes it's also, it's not the pay, it's the work rules. I, I got written up in automotive one time. I picked up a part and I walked across the building. I was an engineer and I, I remember walking into my office and my boss comes running out. What are you doing? I was like, <laughs> Walking back to my desk, he goes, you can't carry that. It was like this five-pound part. I was like, the guy gave it to me. He said I could walk it back. He goes, he knew better. He was just trying to get you caught. And then before you know it, I'm getting written up. I'm like, seriously? That made no sense. Yeah. And and I don't think most people who are in the union would go, oh, yeah, it makes sense. You should be able to walk around with a five-pound part. That's a union job you took. I didn't. <laughs> well, you think about that. You know, on the West Coast, part of the the deal was who maintains the chassis pools. And at many of the West Coast ports, it is the, the union. And we talked about the chassis shortage that was happening during the pandemic well, they just weren't fixing them fast enough. There was plenty of chassis, but there was thousands of them stacked up waiting for repair. And, you know, somebody, yeah, I, I don't know the exact validity of this, but I think they told me it was like $800 to change a tire, you know, and that's why there were so many of them stacked up. It, it, it happens. I mean, it happens. And again, this is the, the reason you end up with problems like this is success. The containerized, containerized shipping has transformed our economy. Look around, whatever you're, if you're driving in a car right now, that most of the parts came on a container ship. <laughs> if you're sitting here, a house, look around, the furniture you have came on a container ship. So we got really good at this over time and there was a lot of money to be made and uh, the unions popped up to grab some of that money. And by the way, guys, look up what these what you can make as a longshoreman. It's it's doctor money. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. And and they didn't have a, uh, a doctor's... Uh, college loan either, you know, those students. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, well, the West Coast has some other problems. Talk about that. What is it? AB? What is it? What is that law? AB5. AB5 was where basically it was outlawing owner operators, which owner operators made up about 70% of the drayage community. So that would be, you know, one guy or, you know, one guy with two trucks wanting to sign on with a company and haul containers for him. He was paid as a 1099 contractor. He got to choose when he worked. He got to choose what loads he hauled. But, you know, California is going to say, hey, we're, we're trying to protect the worker. But on the other side of it, they're also trying to collect their payroll taxes, right? This didn't, this didn't originate from the drayage community. The drayage community was a, you know, an after effect and an afterthought. They were going after Uber and Lyft and wanting to make sure that those Uber and Lyft drivers were protected, so to speak, right? So if there was workers' comp and, you know, any other issues. But on the other hand, they also wanted to collect their payroll tax. So Uber and Lyft got targeted, but all the drayage community was affected. So 
Now you have to decide. There's new trucks because of something else called CARB. You can't use older trucks anymore. And that's an emissions thing. An emissions thing in, in California. The rates recently have plummeted because there's a bit of a recession. The insurance costs are still sky high. And what are you going to do? Are you, You're going to either choose to go into business for yourself, which is very difficult to find the customers. You're going to get rid of your truck and go work for somebody at X dollars per hour that maybe you really don't want to because you can't pick and choose your own, your own schedule, or you move to another profession or you move to another state. So, you know, the drayage community has been greatly affected by AB5 and then the impending CARB compliance on the West Coast. And again, there is no none of that in Houston or Savannah or Charleston. Let me ask this. Is that called CARB, C-A-R-B? Yeah, correct. Now, is that going to force companies? I know you have some of your own assets. Are you going to be having to switch to natural gas or to electric to serve some of those ports? We do have a couple of natural gas trucks. I mean, the biggest thing that we've done is we've we've upgraded our fleet to all newer trucks to kind of avoid, you know, the 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 issues with carb compliance. So all of our trucks are now newer. We're still handling mostly diesel. Oakland is a great example. You know, we'd love to go hydrogen or we'd love to go electric, but your range on those is still fairly limited. And one of our major lanes is Oakland to Reno. And if you're going Oakland to Reno, one, it's 250 miles each way. So you need 500 mile charge, which I don't think you can really get right now. And the second thing is if you're hauling 42,000 pounds and a heavy load over Donner Pass on Route 80, and your electric truck is a bit of a dog. I mean, it's just, it's painful. So in those new electric trucks, I want to say they're like $350,000. So they're right, not right. Cheap. I saw there, I haven't interviewed them yet, but Cummings has a new engine that runs on, I think you can run on either diesel or propane. And propane is much less emissions. And by the way, there's a reason California goes after this. They have a problem with the smog and um, they have beautiful weather, obviously. But there's a lot of kids who are growing up with asthma there that didn't have it and don't have it else. You know, you don't see elsewhere in the country. And AB five is inexcusable. It makes no sense. Again, it's the it's 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 trying to get it's trying to collect dollars. But also, the it's this this do gooder philosophy. Like I want to help the Uber Lyft people. I'll throw this out there. What happens with the Uber Lyft people is. Let's just say you decide I'm going to do some. I drop my kid off at football practice. I'm going to go make. I'm going to go make a few bucks. And, well, as soon as you have to become an employee, Uber says we don't need you from four to six when your kid's at football practice. We need you. And we need you at seven o'clock. And you go. Wait. The only reason I'm doing it is because it was gave me some flexibility, and then. They take the flexibility away. A lot of people no longer want to participate and basically makes no sense. And again, you really hurt the port people and it's not making it easier to do business on the West Coast. Yeah. Well, and how many new residents does a place like Texas get on a daily basis versus how many does somebody like California lose? I mean, California is losing thousands of people a day and places like Texas are gaining thousands of people yeah. a day. And it's such, it's got to be one of the most beautiful places in the world. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll solve that on another podcast. So California has, hopefully we get the new, the new uh, union contract in place and get some stability on that carb. That's an ongoing problem. People like you are going to have to figure out how do we, how do we meet that, that standard? And then we have AB5 again. I hope that gets overturned because it makes no sense. So I know that's not our only problem. Let's talk about what's going on with the canal, the Panama Canal. Yeah, the, the severe drought in uh, Central America. So last I read, it was down to 44 feet of depth. It was at 50 feet of depth, which means that you can have less of a payload on these ships as they go through the canal. There's also a surcharge. And because global demand has gone down significantly, People are slow steaming and potentially going all the way around South America to the East Coast, adding, you know, potentially 10 days to a transit. So that will affect manufacturers and retailers if they're going to go the long route. Right. 
for those of us who uh, didn't pay close attention in school, explain explain what the Panama Canal is and why that's important to our trade. Yeah, the Panama Canal shaves off you know thousands of miles, so you don't have to go all the way around South America to the East Coast. You can shortcut through Central America to the East Coast, so that's going to save time and in theory it should save money because you're you're using less fuel to go through the Panama Canal. Right. And I think the the United States Panama broke off from Colombia and became a separate country with the United States helping well they took the lead on the Panama Canal and then I think there was a 99 year lease it recently went back to Panama controlling that and it's basically they cut a canal So you wouldn't have to go all the way around South America. So if I wanted to ship something from California to New York prior to the canal, they were doing that. You had to go all the way around South America. It was an enormously long trip. Now, even before there was the canal, people would unload stuff and take it by by car or truck or stage train train from the West Coast to the east coast of Panama and get put on another ship. So the Panama Canal shaves off, what, you say a week or 10 days? I'm guessing about 10 days. And so I think 5% of all all freight in the world goes through that. And a big chunk of the freight that we move here in the United States, if it came from, if it came from China or somewhere in, in the Asia, it either gets off in... California and Brian and his team puts it on a, tra- on a train and they ship it by train to the East Coast if it's an East Coast shipment, or it goes through the Panama Canal and to the East Coast and up to New York or wherever. But now you're saying the slow steaming is where they say, I'm going to bypass the Panama Canal. I'm going to pretend it's 150 years ago and I'm going to go all around South America, which adds time and cost. Time, time and cost, but also there's new international, I think it's IMO, which is an emission standard internationally, which is causing the, the steamships to go slower because if it goes slower, I think it moved, the average moved from like 19 knots to 15 knots and that allows them to be in compliance with their emissions, but you, you have that go into effect. So you've got a longer transit time because they're moving slower. And now they're going around South America to avoid the Panama Canal and transit times get extended. But there's really not a lot of demand right now for containerized cargo. It's plummeted, you know, during the pandemic, it was really high. This spring, it was really low. And I think people are working through those those inventories. But when you do have that time-definite cargo that comes up over via ocean, you could get in real trouble. And that's where companies like us helping you manage that drayage, transloading and trucking is, you know, really important. Yeah. Well, it's, it's good to know somebody who, and I'm not just saying this to be nice. There's lots of people who are drayage as they onesie twosie who um, they don't cover every port. They don't have a worldview of containerized shipping. They don't have a worldview of logistics and supply chain. You need somebody who says, Hey, there's options right now. You want to move your stuff? Well, we we had a, a, a customer that um, you know brought this to us uh, maybe a year or so ago. He's like, I know exactly where it is when it's on the ocean. I know that it's in the port, and then it goes into a black hole, and I have no idea. <laughs> exactly. And we we've envisioned what if you could go to one place for all of your drayage and transloading, put a container number in, and instantly know this is where my cargo is. That doesn't matter if it's getting railed to Chicago, doesn't matter if it's being transloaded in Savannah, if it's being trucked from, you know, Los Angeles, California to Ontario, California, you go to one spot, you type in your container number. I call it the Google for containerized cargo and bam, you know where your freight is. So, you know, that's what we're trying to make. And, you know, we're, we're pretty much there because 10 years ago, there was no such thing. I mean, you were, you were struggling let me let me find uh, you know Jim's drayage company with with four trucks and see if he can help me here. Right during during the pandemic, which by the way I said to somebody the other day, it feels like whenever I say before the pandemic, it feels like a decade ago. <laughs> like it was like a, I was like a different person before the. Pandemic. I talked to some people who still think there is a pandemic, so you know. 
Oh, did you guys have a pandemic in Montana? I didn't think it went out that way. Yeah, that was a four-day pandemic, and then it was pretty much over. <laughs> One of the things that came up a lot during the pandemic was you need options. So when LA and Long Beach, two separate ports right next to each other, when they were struggling, you needed somebody, somebody like, like your company to say, here's some other options. Have that ship, instead of going to Port of LA, have it go to up in Canada, have it go over to Savannah, have it go to Virginia, have it go to Houston. We'll move it there. And here's the here's what we can do for you. And we like to say we're subject matter experts. I mean, we know how the steamship lines are working. We know how the different terminals are working. Empty returns is another thing, right? Which steamship lines are easy to return empties? Which ones are not? All these play factors into your supply chain. And to deal with a drayage company that's subject matter experts on which steamship lines are allowing empties to be returned, what terminals are working, what ports are more optimal. We're not just, hey, hey, Brian, what's your your rate from you know Houston to Dallas today? Like we can actually give you real live intel to help your supply chain. And maybe when it's slow, that's not as much needed. But when the tide turns and it's not slow, you need somebody like us to kind of give you that guidance and at least give you the information ahead of time so you don't you know, handcuff yourself and get into jail. Yep. And this is a little off topic, but it's still interesting to me. Most of the containers that get loaded on those ships to go back to Asia usually or Europe are empty. So right now we we know for domestic transportation, if somebody says empty miles, we all cringe. We know that's horrible. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for our bottom lines. It's bad for everybody. Yet we ship empty containers. I think I've heard those container ships are eighty percent, ninety percent empty containers. Yeah, I would venture to say they're about eighty percent empty. And you know, the other thing that's very interesting is if you're an ag exporter, it's still very difficult to get export bookings to get the you know equipment that you need in the place you need it, and and to get that container loaded and then back to port without getting your booking rolled and. You know, you would think that we would really try to to help exporters and specifically those ag exporters, but they're still having a, a hell of a time making sure that they get their cargo loaded and uh, efficiently exported. Do they ship in containers or do they ship in like bulk? It could be both, but a lot of it is is containers or it could be bulk in containers, super sacks or bins or, you know, different things like that. But yeah, there's there's a high demand for that. I will say I've heard people talk about a few things. I've heard people talk about the collapsible containers. So mm -hmm. we can put more containers on one ship. So when we're shipping back, we'll have, you know, I don't know how many containers a container ship it's holds. Like but five, yeah, it's like a five to one ratio. I don't know. I've seen this for over a decade. So there's a reason that nobody's using them. And it's probably just still cost prohibitive at this point. Well, right? yes. They've been around for a long time. Well, also the the steamship lines say, "Hey, you're paying for it." So until until somebody makes it, until until your competitor picks it up and lowers price, you're like, "Why should I?" Right? But I know we're going to see something, and I've heard actually even heard people say, "What if we had a one way container?" Now those containers they can't be disposable, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> uh, it, it's it's it seems like it's ripe for innovation, but um, it's it's an interesting problem. Also. You know, getting those containers back to the port on an efficiently because they did get emptied. You might have that container gets emptied. Somebody, somebody like Brian, has got to get it back to the port and give it back to the owner. Yeah. I, again, another reason to have a subject matter expert that knows how to do these because there's multiple rail ramps in, in Chicago, right? So, you know, you have to take it back to a specific ramp. Is there a chassis split? Can you avoid going to Global 3, which is 90 miles away, which is going to cost you a ton of money? So you're right. It's not just about picking it up and delivering it, but then you have to terminate that empty too, which is a, you know, at certain times, it's a it's a task of its own. I joke about it, but I live kind of in about an hour out of the Detroit metro area, like 20 minutes from Ann Arbor. It's still considered suburban, but there's farms not too far from my house. And it's funny, whenever I drive by, I go, oh, look, some of these containers been out in that field for like 
six months. And some of them I think are decommissioned and that they maybe sold it. But I always, I have a buddy and he owns a uh, heating and cooling business, very big business, got like a lot of them. And I was like, when are you giving that container back? He goes, oh, they didn't ask. I go, Somebody's going to ask and they're going to yeah. tell you what it costs. Yeah. That's like having a library book that's been out for three years and then you get a bill for a hundred bucks. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, let's, let's wrap this bad boy up. So the state of containerized shipping, it's much slower than it was during the pandemic. We're seeing, and it seems like catastrophe averted on the West Coast. Still some problems with the West Coast, primarily uh, related to well, it's slower, but AV5 is still a challenge for companies and uh, for shippers and also the new carb emissions requirements yeah. out there. And, and and the rail too, you know, I live here in Montana. We had a train derailment and train went into the Yellowstone River near Billings. And, you know, if you get a, a line out of service, I mean, that puts a whole crimp in your supply chain too. So there's been, you know, a lot of train derailments, only some of them make the news, but um, that's that's one more thing that can throw a throw a wrench into your your supply chain. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's, it's very interesting. We don't you don't usually hear too much about train derailments unless there's unless it's catastrophic like the one down in um, Ohio. Anyway, so who's the sweet spot for Port X Logistics? Pretty much anybody that is importing containerized cargo, we deal with many NVOCCs and freight forwarders and help them. You know, we collaborate with them. We don't just move the, the cargo for them, but we collaborate with them and their clients to make sure that the cargo is delivered in a timely manner. Many beneficial cargo owners that could be selling consumer goods and then many manufacturers that need just-in-time delivery of their containerized cargo. So, you know, a, a wide spectrum and again, one platform for all ports, the Google of containerized cargo and the fact that we're tracking it on the ocean through the port on the rail or through transload, photographing it, GPS to, uh, tracking. And then, you know, all of that is available on one platform at one time. You know, it is a game changer for our clients. So anybody that's importing containerized cargo that needs complete visibility of their containers, we're the, we're the people to call. And you, and you guys serve every port and every rail ramp in the U.S. and Canada? That is correct. Very nice. Very nice. So, I like to interview smart, interesting people like you who are killing it in this space. Who else should I interview? Well, I mentioned to you Rom at Silk, Silk, S-I-L-Q, and they're really trying to come up with innovative supply chain solutions started in the garment industry from supplier where they're getting their yarn onto the factory floor through manufacturing, then getting the bookings made overseas. And then working with a company like Portex Logistics to do the drainage, transloading, trucking, and, and final delivery, they've got a really unique take on, um, on on how they're looking at supply chain, and I think they're making a lot of progress. Yeah, you know, it seems like what what's happening is we're getting really we're developing niches or niches in our space, and I think that's going to be, you know, we we use the term supply chain, the guys who make stuff, manufacturers, and distributors, the shippers. And then we look at ourselves, the logistics companies, warehousing, fulfillment, transportation, logistics. I think we're going to see more and more integration. And I think guys like you who are tech centric are going to be part of that. But yeah, I would love to interview Ram. I will reach out. Do you have his email or do I got to find him? I, I do. I can, well, you'll either way, you'll find him easily, but I could, I could get you his email. Excellent. Excellent. So what is one more time, what is the name of your uh, newsletter? And can we get a, put the link of that in the show notes? Sure. It's the, the weekly market update, and uh, it's at portaxlogistics.com in our blog section. It comes out every Thursday. It can all, also be found on our LinkedIn page every Thursday. It can be found on my LinkedIn page every Thursday. We do a, a very good job of giving you real-life situations, what is really happening at the ports from people on the ground doing the work. We're not just putting out data that, you know, cargo went up by 2% this week. There's real life 
information about you know the inner workings and what's what is working and what's not working at ports and terminals around the country yeah well, like i said i think what i when i read it it just seems to me you have a point of view on things and that's what you're looking uh, to professionals to do for you is to interpret what's going on and say do this. <laughs> I don't want to become an expert in what you guys do. Just help me get my stuff out of the port and to my to my location. So what conferences will we see you in the PortX Logistics people at? The next one that I'm I'm 100% sure that we are going to be at, we'll probably be at the JOC Inland. We go to that every year. Um, we're going to be at the Co. Where is that at? I think it's in Chicago. It was in Chicago last year. It's at the end of September. I'm on a walkabout in the woods at that time. So that's not one I attend personally. And then uh, the Council of Supply Chain Management is in October. And I think that's in Orlando, Florida. Manifest, which is in Las Vegas this year. So we're hoping that the Buffalo Bills make the Super Bowl so we can see the Bills and go to Manifest <laughs> at the same time. And shortly after that, we uh, we always do the Trans-Pacific Maritime or the TPM conference hosted by JOC. And I do call that the Super Bowl of containerized cargo. I mean, that's really our sweet spot. And we we hit so many people that, uh, you know, need solutions for their drayage, transloading and trucking. Well, well, your Buffalo Bills will be playing in Vegas this year. That's where the, that's where the Super Bowl is. And Manifest is the, the same week as, yes. Yes. as the Super Bowl, but I was just saying, Brian, maybe if you're there and I'm there, we'll just go scalp some cheap tickets to the Super Bowl. I've already got my hotel <laughs> booked for the Super Bowl. So, All right. That's confidence. Yeah. By the way, since since we're in June, a lot of Lions fans are still very optimistic about where they're going. In the I am too. Jack <laughs> Campbell's an exciting coach. Yeah. Excellent. Well, what I'll do is I'll put all those links in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you. And, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about the state of containerized shipping. Awesome, Joe. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for coming and listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.